Welcome to this week's Digest edition of the Evening Times. From Friday the 27th of April to Thursday the 3rd of May 2018. Read by volunteers at Cune Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopriggs Media Centre. Coming up in Part 1. Scotland stands alone in the fight for Devo. So be it. By Leslie Riddick. And I'm reading from the letters. Belated April Fool reminds me why I back a yes vote. Brown, Indiref 2 could be only 12 months away. Deputy Leader Contender predicts vote in a year or two years. Written by Kathleen Nutz. Supreme Court route a dangerous one for May. Taking on Holyrood and Cardiff over Brexit bills is a risky business. And this article by Andrew Tickle on Friday 20th April. Scotland office denies ignoring indie supporters. Questions asked over targets of anti-independence ads. And this article by Andrew Learmonth on Friday 20th April. Betrayal of the indie ref promise to our shipyards. MOD to open up contract for new ships to non-UK bidders. This article by Andrew Learmonth on Friday the 20th of April. Let's make things again in Scotland. We'll all benefit. By Leslie Riddick. Today is the 28th of April 2018 and this is from the National Thursday, April the 26th, 2018. Scotland stands alone in the fight for Devo, so be it, by Leslie Riddick. So is Scotland isolated now that Wales has accepted a Brexit deal with Theresa May? Maybe, but we are where we always are within the, the Celtic Sisterhood leading from the front for a proper not-a-patsy agreement about the division of powers post-Brexit. And since the powers and divvy up are vital for the proper functioning of, of the Cardiff, Edinburgh and Belfast parliaments, you could say the Scottish Government is fighting for the future of devolution. Ironic, eh? Wales Finance Secretary Mark Drakeford says the deal his government has signed means powers in areas currently devolved remain devolved. That's grand, but unless Cardiff has a guarantee, Edinburgh's not yet seen the crucial little word consent is missing from the deal. We've agreed with Westminster, means Theresa May can dabble in Welsh affairs for the next seven years. Now that's a scary enough prospect, but there's a worse one. Theresa could also be elbowing out of the wave by Boris, or the bark in Reese Mogg. Imagine how much time either of them would lavish in areas of, of shared responsibility with Edinburgh. Anyway, the Welsh Government will now repeal the Continuity Bill, leaving the Scottish Government to stand alone defending its own version before the judges of the UK Supreme Court, probably in June. Plans are for a joint ministerial committee in London next week, where Mike Russell will propose another promise. But Whitehall sources say their current offer is now final, since further change would only jeopardise the deal just struck with Cardiff. So what is 
occurring in Wales. With no offence to our Welsh cousins, their constitutional clout and their enthusiasm for home rule has never hit the same levels as the Scots. The referendum that established their assembly in 1997 was won by just 0.6% and from the start the Welsh didn't have the tax-raising powers won by the Scots. Indeed, arguably Wales only got devolution because the Scots pushed for it. Today, despite every conceivable wheel falling off the cart at Westminster, Plaid Cymru has only recently started to advocate independence. For many years, they've settled for greater devolved powers. That's because the size of the Welsh population and its close integration with England poses big practical problems. The Welsh Assembly presided over a leave vote in Wales, the only one of the devolved nations or regions, including London, not to vote Remain. That's testimony to the way in which Welsh politics and society still shadows England. According to Daniel Evans of the the Wales Institute of Social and Economic Research, hardly any of the people we speak to in our research knows anything about the EU dividend to Wales or the implications of Brexit for Wales. Instead, they focus primarily on the, primarily on British issues such as immigration. This reflects the diet of media in Wales, which is the same as England. Scotland, of course, has its own media, a left-wing party in charge and revived engagement and revived engagement in politics since the independence referendum. And there's a final point. The man who made the deal with David Davis, Mark Drakeford, has just announced his intention to stand for the job of Welsh Labour leader, days after the veteran Labour leader Cowan Jones, the architect of the Defiant Continuity Bill strategy, said he was going to quit. Drakeford is the man with the mission to make headlines in Wales. He's done that, but he may soon regret not taking a tougher stand and a longer view. So Wales basically lacks the the smedum, history and democratic mandate to stand up to London. Maybe that explains their decision to take an early bath. Unionist-dominated Northern Ireland has also pulled its punches in arguments with Westminster, and while the current First Minister, Arlene Foster, looks well capable of flattening any Laosh London Tory that gets in her way, she's somewhat restrained or constrained by being a Brexiteer herself, as well as the woman who who sold her party's soul for £1 billion investment in the province. Then there's the wee technical problem that Northern Ireland currently has no assembly. So its politicians must stand by and, and watch as Theresa May quietly fill its stormant. So yes, the Scottish Government is having to fight alone for Scotland's own interests, for our Celtic cousins who will doubtless try to upgrade to, their, to any improved offer we achieve and, hugely ironically, for a way to make the devolution settlement continue to work. Earlier this week, when the SNP leader announced that she wouldn't be, rubbing st- be rubber-stamping the London deal, Adam Tompkins, the Scottish Tories' constitution spokesman, said The Welsh Government has signed up to this deal, yet Nicola Sturgeon alone refuses because she prefers to pick a fight with the rest of the UK, 
in order to keep her obsession with the second independence referendum alive. Please. Yes, Nicola Sturgeon is alone among the devolved nations standing up to the Tories, and that's probably why the SNP are once again ahead in the polls, matey. Crucially, she is not alone in the Scottish Parliament, where every other party backed the FM's fight to protect its powers except... Och, well, you've likely guessed, plus Lib Dem Mike Rumble's bizarre. Green co-convener Patrick Harvey says, We believe MSPs must dig our heels in and refuse to give consent to the EU withdrawal bill. It's unacceptable for Brexit to be used to undermine devolution, especially when Scotland voted Remain so strongly. The people of Scotland have already shown they want nothing to do with this Brexit disaster. Quite. It would, be a, it would be a surprising but significant moment for architects of devolution if Scottish Labour's leader, Richard Leonard, can bring himself to back the Scottish Government explicitly at First Minister's questions today. Already, the former Labour MSP, Malcolm Chisholm, has tweeted, Hope the parties of devolution will stand with Nicola Sturgeon in defence of the 1998 Scotland Act. And the principle of partnership based on consent. Though Scottish Labour's Brexit spokesman Neil Finlay has said the fact that the Government of Wales has reached an agreement with the Scottish Government, but the Scottish Government has not, is a real concern. Up until now, the degree of consensus in Holyrood on the fight to safeguard its powers has been almost unprecedented since the Indiref. And it's not just MSPs who have come off the fence to defend the Parliament in the face of Westminster diktat. The mainstream media may have denied this argument, the oxygen of publicity, but leading academics have come forward to back the legitimacy of the Scottish Government's stand. Professor Eileen McCaig and Dr Christopher McCorkindale of Strathclyde University have put their weight behind the Lord Advocate, James Wolfe, who insists the Continuity Bill has been carefully framed to be in line with both UK and EU law. If this is isolation, Nicola Sturgeon's Tory opponents must have forgotten what it's like to walk alone. Their memory may be refreshed ere long. So what will happen next? In the, this important standoff between Holyrood and Westminster, which government will blink first? Actually, Despite Theresa May's insistence that all detail must be nailed down by next week, a deadline that seems to have flapped the Welsh, the final amending stage in the House of Lords is mid-May. That's a real deadline for the legislative consent motion at Holyrood. Of course, the UK government has, has acquired the powers to simply steamroll the all opposition and let's face it, a Prime Minister with a brass neck to, def to deny responsibility for the vicious environment that left Windrush descendants on the verge of deportation, a Tory leader unperturbed by the fact universal credit rollout has produced a 52% rise in food bank use this year. A woman unable to empathise with such human misery is unlikely to be stopped by Scots politicians, no matter how almost united. But she should remember Ruth Davidson's Tories helped her get where she is today and their prospects of re-election weaken with each passing month 
and each abandoned commitment to the, the values of decency, democracy and inclusion. Many no voters hold dear. In Theresa May's world, where might is always right, Nicola Sturgeon's insistence on respect and parity for the Scottish Parliament may seem laughable, but David beat Goliath and pride comes before a fall. Between the anonymous DUP dark money donations and Cambridge Analytica scandal and the whistleblower revelations about alleged illegal coordination between campaign groups, the case for halting this shambles grows stronger by the day. End of item. Here at Q&A Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. This is The National on Friday the 20th of April 2018. And I'm reading from the letters. Belated April Fool reminds me why I back a yes vote. Congrats to Kevin McKenna for getting his piece about compassionate Tories published 17 days after the April Fool's date. It should have been. Thank God for the compassionate Tories. Finally a party that cares, April the 18th. Surely most, like me, boff to the point of apoplexy at his comedic skill. Seriously, his piece reminded me precisely why I support independence for my Scotland. Because my premise is simple. It is about the style of government I believe an independent Scotland could deliver. A caring, egalitarian administration in our Scottish tradition of fairness for all and the sense of we're a Jock Tamson's Bairns community that Margaret Thatcher ensued by rejecting any notion of society which succeeded generations of her followers have enthusiastically trumpeted. Examples like the rape clause, sending our bombers into harm's way without recourse to full international diplomacy while ignoring the guidance and authority of the United Nations. The whipping up of the immigration witch hunt that has led to the appalling Windrush scandal and those Europeans who have invested their lives, wealth and futures in Scotland being hamstrung and threatened with deportation bring international embarrassing shame to Westminster's style of government. Add this to this Scotland being ignored over Brexit and our Scottish Secretary being posted missing by his deliberate exclusion from the Brexit decision-making process although it will impact Scots severely, along with our worthless Scottish Tory MP, whose only talent is to place the interests of British Tory diktat before the needs of the Scots. They're supposed to be represent, and it becomes patiently clear. British model highlights how we have no real determination of our own interests and affairs. While I agree that independence may be best won through a positive message for Scotland's economic ability to thrive in the future, perhaps the real incentive for independence for me personally is finally ending the various hues of Tory doctrine from whatever party that ignores equal partnership from the UK nations in favour of the preservation of Westminster's politically selfish, 
autocratic dogma. So thanks again, Kevin, for highlighting precisely the imperative for Scottish affairs to be fully in the control of those who live, work, contribute taxes and are otherwise welcome stakeholders in Scotland. And that was written by Jim Taylor in Edinburgh. And the second one. What sort of minds live in the bodies of those modern Tories? The rape clause is as diabolical part of a nasty bill that again attacks the poor whilst having no effect whatsoever on the rich. Add this to the bedroom tax, the universal credit fiasco and the demonisation of immigrants and we are on the way to the creation of a sick society. After the Second World War, country first, party second and self third was the moral guidance which motivated MPs. Sometime between then and now, this has all been reversed. Unfortunately, the new position seems to permeate society. And that was written by Mike Underwood from Linlithgow. And another one. It seems nonsensical to me to decry a Conservative for being a Conservative. Why would anybody say a dog should behave like a cat? No, of course not. Conservative MPs are elected to conserve the present economic and political system. They shouldn't be criticised for playing the system to their maximum advantage. If the population wishes for a fairer system for all, they should vote for politicians who are motivated to introduce one. Politicians for whom personal gain is not a consideration. There are not many about. And that was written by Jeff Naylor in Winchester. And this is entitled The Long Letter. Socialists must fight for the workers amid Brexit negotiations. Brexit had dominated British politics for the past two years and that looks likely to continue for the foreseeable future. With this prospect in mind, the Scottish Socialist Voice newspaper has organised a forum with speakers from home and abroad to consider how the left can have an influence on the ongoing Brexit negotiations. See notice board for details. From mid the fog, uncertainty and bogus claims, one thing is clear. Neither set of negotiators intends to advance the interests of working people. On the country, the Tories and the EU commissioners aim to sign a deal which further undermines the economic, social and political conditions facing working people in Britain and the remainder of this continent. Both David Davis and Michael Barnier are set to create conditions for Europe's multinational corporations that maximise their profits. That means continuing with a neoliberal feeding frenzy of the past 25 years with further deregulation, more casualisation and falling wages in real terms for the masses. Since its inception, the EU has promoted the class of interests of Europe's corporate elite above all. That political project began in the 1940s when the profits of coal and steel conglomerates were put front and centre in the Treaty of Rome. 
Those fundamentals have been enhanced by subsequent treaties until today when the vested interests of bankers and multinational industrialists remain sacrosanct. These bankers and industrialists may have preferred a Remain vote in 2016, it's true, but they will adapt and carry on with their with their exploitation and profiteering. Brexit was a victory for the Tory right, for Farage's UKIP and the reactionary little Englanders who wanted to take back control. It was they who obsessed over Europe for decades. It was they who demanded the referendum, and June 2016 was their victory. That spectre hangs over these negotiations, and the left must act to combat it. Unlike the SNB and the Greens, however, the Scottish Socialist Party sees no knight in shining armour in the EU. Although we voted to remain, we saw it as the lesser of two evils. It is now vital for the left to get organised and to appreciate the full implications of the fact that working people have no team on the park. In these negotiations, they are at the mercy of two sets of capitalists who plan further attacks. Socialists need to fight for demands that benefit working people, and that means, for example, putting issues such as public ownership back on the table in the Brexit negotiations. Equally, introducing a £10 an hour living wage as a Brexit premium would be hugely popular for Scotland's 500,000 casualised and poorly paid workers. The Norwegian trade union leader and author Asborn Wall, who has published many a critique on the failures of the European social democracy in this regard, will fly over to join our panel on the day and speak to these demands. We will have one of Scotland's most eminent economists, Margaret Cuthbert, and a speaker from Janice Varafukis Dam, 25, with us to enlighten the debate. And that letter was written by Colin Fox, National Spokesman, Scottish Socialist Party. This is The National on Friday, April the 20th, 2018. Brown, Indiref 2 could be only 12 months away. Deputy Leader Contender predicts vote in a year or two years. Written by Kathleen Nutz. The frontrunner in the race to become Nicola Sturgeon's deputy has forecast a second independence referendum could be held as early as April next year. Economy Secretary Keith Brown made the prediction in an election leaflet posted on social media ahead of the beginning of the contest's hustings this weekend. The next independence referendum could be held in 12 months or two years, he said. As the First Minister has said, the time to make the decision will be later this year, when the timing and the shape of the Brexit deal and the extent of the damage it will do to Scotland becomes clearer. That is something no one can predict at this stage. He added, My job, if elected as deputy leader, will be to make sure we're ready to win the referendum whenever it comes, that we use the time between now and then to engage our membership hone the case for independence and heighten our organisational and campaigning capacity to help us fight to win.
The timing of a new vote has been the big issue dominating the contest and Brown's latest intervention will further intensify the debate. Brown's prediction has special weight as he is a senior member of the Scottish Government and as such is close to the First Minister. April next year is the earliest and the most precise date for a second vote suggested by any of the three deputy leadership candidates and it's likely to be popular suggestion among many of the party's grassroots who want to see a new vote take place soon. Chris McElney, the SNP group leader on Inverclyde Council, wants to see a new vote within 18 months while Julie Hepburn, a senior activist and former party worker, has not made any specific predictions on the timing of a new vote, saying it will be up to the First Minister to determine when to call. Pete Wishart, the long-serving Perthshire MP, ruled himself out from standing in the contest after raising concerns about holding a second referendum prematurely before a revised case has been put to the Scottish people. His views proved not to be popular amongst independent supporters and the SNP's grassroots and he decided not to enter the contest. This is the second time Brown has been a contender for the debut post. He stood in 2015 but was narrowly defeated by the MP Stuart Hosey. He has received substantial backing from senior figures in the party, including MSPs Bruce Crawford, Claire Adamson, Linda Fabrani, Christine Graham, Mike Russell and Ian McKee. The MPs Stuart MacDonald, Patricia Gibson, Deirdre Brock, Neil Gray and Douglas Chapman also endorse him, as does the party's national organiser Fiona MacLeod, a former MSP. Last night, McElney, who stood unsuccessfully in 2016, addressed a pro-independence event in Fife, organised by the Commonweal think tank, where he argued the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn did not present a threat to Scottish independence but it should be regarded as an opportunity. Many people class Corbyn as a radical but just what are the Labour Party's radical policies under his leadership? Free university tuition? We've been doing that in Scotland for a decade. Nationalisation of England's nine water companies? Scottish water is already publicly owned. More free childcare, expanding free provisions for two, three and four-year-olds, the creation of publicity-owned energy companies, bringing railways back into public ownership when franchises expire, ending the public sector pay gap and so on, all of which we are already doing in Scotland under the Scottish Government. He added, however... Hidden at the back of Corbyn's radical manifesto was the following sentence. Labour supports the renewal of the Trident nuclear deterrent. If I could ask Corbyn one question, it would be, what's radical about spending £200 on a new generation of weapons of mass destruction to be imposed on Scotland? He added, the membership of the SNP should have a leadership role in helping inform the key decisions we make as a party. This election comes at an opportune moment as we inform our leader, Nicola Sturgeon, of the wider party's options when she makes...
a decision in the autumn on what course of action best protects the interests of Scotland. Some think we aren't ready to win a referendum and urge caution. I believe we're ready to go. If SNP members vote for me, they have the opportunity to make their voices heard that they, like me, believe we should have a referendum on independence within the next 18 months. The deputy leadership contest was triggered in March after Angus Robertson stood down after losing his Moray seat at last year's general election. Robertson beat McElroy, Tommy Shepherd, and MEP Alan Smith to win the race in 2016, following Hosey's resignation after newspaper reports about his personal life. The winner of the contest will be announced on June the 8th, on the first day of the SNP's conference in Aberdeen Exhibition and Conference Centre. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. This is The National on Friday 20th April. Supreme Court route a dangerous one for May. Taking on Holyrood and Cardiff over Brexit bills is a risky business. And this article by Andrew Tickle on Friday 20th April. A colleague has a drinking crony with a standard quip to explain away any incomprehensible development in public or private life the barfly invariably invokes legal reasons with a nod and a wink. It's an explanation that covers a multitude of sins and who can blame him for using it. To the average punter, the internal working of the law's infernal machinery often seems baffling. For legal reasons, as often as good and as comprehensive an explanation as any. So it goes with the legal tidings this week that Theresa May's Attorney-General has decided, in cahoots with the Advocate-General for Scotland, to elbow Holyrood's Brexit continuity bill off the Queen's desk and into the docket of the UK Supreme Court. Hold on, ma'am. Advocate General Lord Keane of Ely says, We think Holyrood and the Welsh Assembly have nicked our powers. Giving evidence at the Scottish Parliament back in 2015, I remember Tavish Scott was affronted at my suggestion that vagueness in the devolution settlement might generate litigation between the different administrations at work in these islands. Governments do not go to court against each other, do they? The Lib Dem MSP asked, insisting such litigation was unthinkable. Come 2018, one thing is clear. They do now. But Mr Scott's question was more fundamentally misinformed. There is a statutory obligation in media reports to refer to the UK government's case against the continuity bills as unprecedented, but that isn't quite true. While Whitehall has avoided referring Scottish bills to the Supreme Court since 1998, 
the Welsh have grown rather more familiar with defending the legality of their measures in front of the court. The scores on the doors are 2-1 to one in favour of Carwin Jones' administration. The UK government now has a chance for a score draw. They took up the opportunity late. Attorney General Jeremy Wright waited till the last moment to lodge his papers. Why? From the UK government's perspective, the timelines are a mess. Negotiations with the devolved administrations on David Davis's proposals remain deadlocked. The Lords will shut the book on his bill on May 8th. If Davis wishes to table amendments with the blessing of the devolved governments, a deal must be struck with Nicola Sturgeon and Jones before then. When Holyrood passed its continuity bill in March by 95 votes to 32, Theresa May had just four weeks to refer the case to the Supreme Court. Since then, senior Scottish Tories have been softening up public opinion for the possibility of litigation. The Secretary of State for Scotland was doing his best to appear intensely relaxed about negotiating with Holyrood against the backdrop of an exchange of lawyers' letters last week. I think when you have two different views as to the legality of the bill, it's almost inevitable that it has to be tested in the legal process, David Mundell said, characterising the case as just a process thing. Well, yes and no. First, let's be clear what this case isn't about. It isn't about the Sewell Convention or Holyrood Consent. It isn't about the Act of Union. Whatever the outcome, it will not transform the UK into a federal state. So what's the heart of the case? Ultimately, the devolution legislation requires several things of its parliaments. They must respect fundamental rights. They must not pass laws about matters reserved to Westminster. And critically, they are not entitled to pass laws which are incompatible with EU law. The core of the UK government's argument is that the two devolve legislators are doing precisely this with their continuity bills. This argument has considerable weaknesses. Firstly, it is not contrary to EU law for a member state to contemplate departing from the jurisdiction of the European Court. Article 50 sketches the roadmap for departing. Lord Advocate James Wolfe, QC's argument, has a droll sting to it. If laying the legal groundwork for Brexit in Holyrood is incompatible with EU law, then logically David Davis is also acting incompatibly with EU law in trying to steer his leaky Brexit bill through Westminster. In Andy Whiteman's parallel court of session case on the revocability of Article 50, May's lawyers built their case around the idea Whiteman's challenge was hypothetical and academic. Why? The UK government's policy was that the notification will not be withdrawn. But in challenging the continuity bills as unlawful power grabs by the devolved parliaments, Lord Keane wants to persuade the Supreme Court that Brexit isn't a done deal. So what's the argument? That Westminster can legitimately anticipate the slow-motion car crash of withdrawing from the EU but Holyrood and Cardiff are obliged to wait for the impact before reacting. Schrodinger's Brexit, at once inevitable and hypothetical at the same time, fuel the cognitive dissonance, wibble-wibble. Moreover, the Lord Advocate was wise to the obvious objections, anticipating noises about legislative competence. So Holyrood's bill sets out chapter and verse that its purpose and effect is to make provision for what happens after the UK takes back control and the monochrome red tape of Brussels is rebranded red, white and blue. The continuity bill's provisions can't kick in until exit day, 
meaning the day the UK leaves the EU. Yet despite these caveats and reservations, Richard Keane is determined to argue that evolved bills trespass into EU law. He is also likely to dredge through Schedule 5 of the Scotland Act, looking for reserved matters that can be thrown the continuity bill's way if his EU argument fails. Belt and braces. Publicly, the Scottish Conservatives have been on full trumpet about the continuity legislation. Illegal bill, rule of law, presiding officer's opinion, nationalist grievance mongering, you know, the usual Tory bingo. But privately, there is recognition that the legal issues with the bill are more finely balanced and there is every chance Keane will lose his case. On the face of it, you might think there are only two outcomes, win or lose. But it isn't quite so simple. The Supreme Court might reach the conclusion the bill is an overstretching of Holyrood's powers. Alternatively, the justices may decide Cardiff and Edinburgh are well within the rights to lay down the legal groundwork for how to reckon with EU law in devolved areas after Brexit. For the UK government, this outcome has obvious embarrassing political potential. The PM's law officers have been keen to present their constitutional manoeuvres on the bill as a publicly minded attempt to ensure legal certainty for businesses and punters about who decides what in the wake of Britain's departure from the EU. But in the hurly-burly of politics, it can readily be framed as an attempt, as Joanna Cherry put it, to defeat a bill in the courts which it couldn't defeat by democratic means in the Scottish Parliament. But for the UK government, there is also a sticky third option. The Supreme Court might decide the detail of the emergency bills passed by the SNED and the Holyrood are outside their legislative competence, while accepting in principle that devolved parliaments are entitled to track their own course out of Brexit within their powers. For Theresa May, this looks like a decidedly pyrrhic victory. That's the law, but the backdrop remains political. Come what may, this case is another mess, another ugly scene on Brexit's Via Dolorosa, and for Mrs May's administration and its Whitehall worldview, another unforced error. This article by Andrew Tickle. This is The National on Friday 20th April. Scotland office denies ignoring indie supporters. Questions asked over targets of anti-independence ads. And this article by Andrew Learmonth on Friday 20th April. The Scotland office has denied spending public money for party political purposes. SNP MP Deirdre Brock said she had uncovered proof the Tory government department had spent money on adverts promoting Scotland's trade with the rest of the UK that would deliberately exclude independent supporters. In answers to written questions in Parliament, Scottish Secretary David Mundell confirmed to the Edinburgh North and Leith MP that his department's 2017 Scotland's Trade campaign had been promoted to people on social media except for those who declared an interest in Scottish independence. The Scotland office deny implications of wrongdoing, saying ignoring people interested in Scottish independence in targeted social media adverts also means ignoring people supportive of the union. Writing in today's National, Brock admits this isn't quite Cambridge Analytica, but says there are questions to be answered. I've no problem with politicians making political points, but they shouldn't use public money to mount a targeted advertising campaign when their arguments are failing.
what Mr Mundell has been doing isn't what Cambridge Analytica was doing, but it's presenting one face to one group of people and a different face to another group. We should expect more from government ministers. We should expect that they would be consistent in what they say. Last month, the investigative website, The Ferret, obtained a swathe of documents under Freedom of Information that disclosed details of how the Scotland office targeted Facebook messages at specific groups of people in Scotland, including one advertising campaign solely aimed at small business owners in Mundell's Dumfrieshire constituency. Other campaigns targeted armed forces personnel in Scotland. A UK government spokesman dismissed Brock's claim, saying it was about getting their message to people not normally engaged in politics. It is nonsense to say that we targeted everyone except independent supporters. The category, interested in independence, includes those with views on both sides of the argument. It does not only exclude those who support independence. It is inaccurate to say that this is the case. The simple fact is that all of our digital material is publicly available to all via our channels. The additional audience category we targeted on this occasion merely boosted the message to those who may not have been aware of the information and were less likely to be engaged in online debate. As revealed in the National last month, the Scotland's Trade campaign cost the UK government £50,000 of public money. The adverts told Scots that trade with the rest of the UK was worth four times more than trade with Europe. They were targeted at Facebook, Google and Twitter users as the UK government officials moved to ensure that the public are equipped with the facts on the value of doing business with barrier-free markets in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Of the £47,395 spent, almost £40,000 of the money went to Facebook with around £4,000 buying pay-per-click ads on Google. Around £4,500 was spent on Twitter. The material compared figures for Scotland's trade with the EU and Scotland's trade with the UK. And this article by Andrew Learmont. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com, forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. This is The National on Friday 20th April. Betrayal of the Indy Ref promise to our shipyards. MOD to open up contract for new ships to non-UK bidders. This article by Andrew Learmonth on Friday the 20th of April. Ministry of Defence plans to open up a £1 billion order for three new ships to firms in Germany, Italy and South Korea has been described as an act of blatant betrayal by the First Minister. The UK government needs three Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships and has asked foreign yards to make them an offer for the chance to build them. But Nicola Sturgeon, speaking at First Minister's Questions, said that was not what was promised in the independence referendum campaign. That work should be on the Clyde, she told MSPs. I argue that that work was promised to the Clyde 
and should definitely go to the Clyde. We should be very clear. What we are now seeing develop around the work and the future of the shipyards is nothing short of blatant betrayal of Scottish shipyards. During the referendum, promises were made to those shipyards by the Tories and indeed by all the Unionist parties. The shipyards were told of promises of work for years to come. The Unionist parties specifically said that if Scotland became independent, it would not be able to secure that work for the client because contracts could not go to foreign countries. It is an absolute betrayal and I hope that we will hear all parties across the Parliament stand up for shipbuilding on the Clyde. The GMB Union wants a UK-only competition and says it could create 11,000 jobs. In effect, this would give the taxpayer a £285 million rebate through income tax and other benefits. UK Business Secretary Greg Clark was quizzed on the issue during a Holyrood committee meeting. Speaking afterwards, Labour's Jackie Bailey said, Tory ministers appear content to let these jobs and investment go overseas. It is absolutely disgraceful that Greg Clark refused to commit to building these ships in the UK. Scotland's shipbuilders are world-renowned and deserve every support from the UK and Scottish governments. The UK government must urgently reverse this decision to tender this contract internationally. Current MOD policy is that only orders for war combat ships such as the Type 26 frigates go to UK yards. GMB National Officer for Shipbuilding Ross Murdoch said Ministers are not bound by normal EU rules on competitive tendering when it comes to military ships. We face being sold down the river if the work goes to subsidised international competitor shipyards. An MOD spokesman said they encourage Scottish yards to compete for the contract when it launches later this year. All our warships are built in the UK with the Type 26 frigates securing 4,000 Scottish jobs and 20 years of work on the Clyde and industry is preparing to bid for the new Type 31E class, he said. And this article by Andrew Learmonth. Today is the 20th of April 2018 and this is from the National Thursday, April the 19th, 2018. Let's make things again in Scotland. We'll all benefit. By Leslie Riddock. Anywhere else, the BIFAB news would be across every front page, but somehow a deal that saves fabrication firm BIFAB hundreds of skilled jobs at its Methil, Burnt Island and Arnish Yards and Scotland's capacity to build the kit needed to realise our destiny as the Saudi Arabia of renewables only crept into the nether regions of the news this newspaper exerted. Of course, new Canadian owners, DF Barnes, will still have to win contracts. Of course, the Scottish Government's role as minority shareholder doesn't guarantee that will happen, and naturally, support for BIFAB has prompted calls for similar interventions to help other struggling companies. But with luck and a renewed sense of purpose, the BIFAB deal could be a game-changer for Scotland, not just because it means Scotland retains the homegrown capacity to build and install the engines, turbines, rigs and support vessels needed by our vital marine, renewables and energy sector and end a situation where almost every wind farm turbine 
manufactured elsewhere. But because Bifab's resurrection could be a watershed, it could be the moment Scott starts to believe in the importance of engineering and manufacture again. The moment we consciously reverse the de-industrialisation of Scotland that began after the war and was dramatically hastened by Margaret Thatcher. Of course, Scots rejected Maggie time and again at the ballot box, but somehow we came off, we came to believe her siren message that making stuff is not where the, the future of Scotland lies. So we've had 30 years of a non-industrial policy reflecting the priorities of the City of London, which prefers to ship its money abroad and invest in British companies making profits by delivering public services on the cheap. We've been brainwashed into thinking that making things is the last century activity, but take a look around. None of our European neighbours thinks this way. Paul Sherrin, chief executive of the Scottish Engineering Federation, worked for an Italian company for five years and recalls. They had an instinct to buy local and build local. Any good news story about engineering or manufacturing was a front-page story. Here only bad news makes the headlines. I really don't know why there's such a difference, but it doesn't help our young people to think about engineering as a career and choose STEM subjects at school. He's right. This unquestioned presumption that things can only be built properly elsewhere is massively damaging to our economy and cultural confidence. Every constructed thing was once an idea. Turn that around and you realise that every unconstructed thing is an idea abandoned. Ultimately, the failure to realise ideas to build things smashes up an economy and a faster society than anything else. On egg, for example, it's taken 20 years of skill raising and confidence building for a generation of young builders to start using the native wood supplies and have always existed there, cutting costs and build time dramatically. In the past, experts worried that Scottish wood was less dense and therefore less strong than wood from slow-growing trees further north. Now native island wood is finally being used for, to build new homes. The beams are simply cut thicker. Another highland builder told me, when I first started building houses, there were still a few local sawmills in Argyle. They had now all gone. Nordic countries, by contrast, have lots of these, all very high-tech and coupled with small joinery manufacturing companies. Get a catalogue from any builder's merchant in Scotland and you will see a bewildering array of high-tech timber doors and windows from Nordic countries. Not here. That has to change, but as ever the biggest challenge facing the spirited reindustrialization of Scotland is Westminster's control of key economic levers. Take energy, which is reserved to London. Last year, UK investment in clean energy halved. A bigger drop than in any other developed country in the world, and all because of UK government policy. The dramatic slump of 56% in one year means the UK will probably miss out its own legally binding carbon reduction targets and lags behind China 
when investment is up 24%, Spain up 36%, Canada up 45%, the Netherlands up 30%, and even Donald Trump's USA up by 1% despite his controversial support for coal and nuclear power. Mary Krieg, the Labour chair, Chairwoman of the Commons Environment, Environmental Audit Committee said, This is the second year in a row renewable energy investment in the UK has nosedived. Losing European Investment Bank funding if we leave the EU would make the problem even worse. Just as well then that Scotland's own investment bank is coming on stream in 2020 with an initial fund of £500 million and and a mission of revitalising Scotland's renewables industry. This targeted approach has expert backing. Rick Lander of Friends of the Earth Scotland says, the mission-led approach takes the investment bank away from just pumping money into businesses and back to public policy and a focus on the common good. It is fundamental that this bank is to benefit society. When we have a financial sector that is self-serving and toxic, University College London Professor Marianne Mazzucato, one of the Scottish Government's team of economic advisers, praised the emphasis on patient finance. She says, Innovation requires patient strategic, strategic finance and there is simply not much of that in the UK. But around the world, but around the world state investment banks are taking centre stage in providing such finance for key social and economic challenges of the 21st century. Happily, Scotland has now joined them, so are we ready to become an industrial nation again, building our own infrastructure with homemade technology, skills and materials? What the heck is stopping us? Green councillor Gavin Corbett wants city-region deals to steer away from business as usual. more bypasses and business parks, and towards green reindustrialisation and resilient economies. Form, former Social Justice Minister Alex Neil would like to see more spending on business research and development, more even than the extra £45 million for R&D grants announced by Nicola Sturgeon last year. We spend about one-fifth of what Norway and Finland do as a percentage of GDP. While we've got some strong sectors like whisky. We aren't at the races regarding the strength or diversity of manufacturing compared to regions in Germany and France. Of course, it's not easy for Scotland to hit top gear. We are struggling off a troubled industrial legacy. In 19th century Scotland, the links between coal mining, iron and steel, heavy engineering and shipbuilding meant a concentration of ownership and a failure to reinvest profits in modernisation. Instead, profits were invested abroad. By the early 20th century, there was a widespread view Scotland's manufacturing sector was too much orientated towards iron, steel, shipbuilding and other heavy engineering industries, all of which were highly dependent on export demand and too little focused on rapidly growing domestic consumer demand. The two world wars saved these industries temporarily. But after World War II... Shipbuilding 
railway engines and other heavy industries faced increasing international competition from the USA, Germany and Japan after a brief period of focus on indigenous industry by the Scottish Development Agency in the 1960s. Support for the traditional industries faltered by the 1970s and was effectively ended by the Thatcher government in the 1980s. The focus switched to industrialisation by invitation, especially on inward investment by US multinationals in office machinery and light manufacturing. These multinationals preferred a non-unionised workforce and reinforced Thatcher's anti-union policies from the 1980s, while other comparable countries managed to expand shipbuilding and heavy engineering, particularly Germany, Japan and Norway, and adopt new techniques, Scotland failed to do so. As Professor John Bryden wrote recently in Northern Neighbours, which compares Scotland and Norway since, since 1800, the discovery of North Sea oil in the late 1960s and its exploitation in the 1970s provided little or no succour to Scotland's indigenous industries, as it came at a time when the industrial base was weak and failing. Downstream and upstream activities mainly benefited US multinationals, while tax revenues accrued to the Westminster government and also used to bolster, bolster the Thatcher neoliberal project, prosecute international aggression and bolster re-election prospects. In short, the UK was following neoliberal free trade approaches to everything and failing to take the necessary action to retain and adapt its traditional and formerly highly successful skills and industries. It also became highly dependent on inward flows of investment, especially from the USA, for oil development and for manufacturing, with the result that much of the profit leaked out from Scotland. Norway's approach to the industrialisation, natural resource ownership and oil specifically, was quite different from that of the UK, and by extension Scotland, Norway's industrialisation was based largely on hydroelectric power, which was a resource dispersed around the country which was thought to belong to communities rather than individuals. Unlike coal in Scotland, which was a privately owned resource, mostly in the hands of large landowners, foreign investment in Norwegian hydropower and manufacturing was controlled by the concession laws of 1906, passed straight after Norwegian independence, which not only took back control of rivers and therefore hydropower, dams to hydropower dams to local principalities, but also insisted that manufacturing should go hand in hand with the development of the hydropower. This manufacturing included the smelting, fertilizer and chemical manufacture, all of which required cheap energy. After 25 years, hydroelectric generation has made millions of state-owned electric companies and councils who use the cash for local development. 
That's why almost every small coastal town in Norway has a construction, oil, gas, hydro, aluminium, paper pulp or shipbuilding industry. That in turn is why there's enough pr prosperity, even in Arctic Norway, to finance decent infrastructure and retain the rural population and the collective approach to hydropower also explains the development of North Sea Oil by a large state-owned company, Statoil, and the Sovereign Oil Fund, which is today worth more than £6 billion, or roughly £100,000 per citizen. In addition, Norway has a rule that Norwegian companies supply the oil industry, meaning that oil revenues have had a much bigger local economic impact than they've done in Scotland. All of this has helped Norway take construction jobs from Scotland, even though the Norwegian krona is two, three times stronger than sterling. Norway has made sure that its people have benefited directly from its hydroelectric and oil resources in a way Scotland has not been able to and the UK has not been willing to do. It's important to know why this is. Norway does not lead Scotland in traditional skills or enterprise. Relating to hydro, oil and renewables, it had the good fortune to achieve virtual independence from Denmark in 1814, which allowed it to develop later economic policies rooted in the more democratic and participatory society. We have a long way to go to catch up with Norway, but there is no question we can do it once all the levers are in our own hands. And when that happens, we may look back and see the bold sign to save Bifab as the day we began to, re to believe again in the power of building our ideas. End of item. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The National. This is a message from the NFB UK, the National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom. What is NFB UK? The National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom, NFB UK, is a self-help organisation of blind, partially sighted and deaf-blind people helping each other to help ourselves. It's an independent, non-political charity that campaigns for greater rights, citizenship and independent living. How does NFB UK work? We have a network of branches around the country where members and supporters can meet locally. The branches keep our members in touch with their local community and represent their views to local and national authorities and society in general. We provide information for our members in Braille, large print, audio and electronic formats. We work with local and national organisations to improve the quality of life for all blind, partially sighted, deaf-blind people and those whose sight impairment is part of multi-disability. NFB UK campaigns to defend essential benefits and social care services and seeks wider provision of these services and equipment to help us lead independent lives. We have local branches around the country and are aiming to open new branches in more areas. What are the benefits of joining NFB UK? You meet other blind, partially sighted and deafblind people with an interest in peer support, campaigning and making a difference. Members decide and shape which issues and campaigns to focus on and you decide how you want to work on campaigns. It's free to join this year. You will benefit from our special offer of one year's free membership. You can receive regular updates and share information through newsletter, e-group and our audio magazine for members. 
Founded in 1947, we have played a leading role in Articles for the Blind postal concessions, the retention of different banknote sizes according to denomination, and tactile street paving. Current issues. We are currently active in issues around shared spaces and the built environment, disabled students' allowance, social care and rehabilitation, and the NHS and accessible information standards. Join us. If you are blind, partially sighted or deafblind, become a full member. We welcome sighted people to join as associate members. Any donation you can make will assist us to further our campaigning. For more information, visit www.nfbuk.org. Contact us via post, NFBUK, Sir John Wilson House, 215 Kirkgate, Wakefield, West Yorkshire, WF1, 1JG. That's Whiskey Foxtrot 1, 1 Juliet Golf. Telephone us 01924 291 313 or email admin at nfbuk.org. Also on Twitter and Facebook at nfbuk. Now back to the main programme. This is part two. Coming up. Call for rebate over price control profits. Article by James Hamilton. Scotland needs its own law to protect puppies. By the wee ginger duck. We can't yet abolish the monarchy, but we can tackle poverty. By John Finney. Photographer has prize stripped over faked anteater photo. An article by Bridget Morris. Rudd must go. Call to quit after review of deportation targets by Kirstine Patterson. First Minister, I won't sign up to UK's dodgy powers deal by Gregor Young. This article written by columnist Tasmina Ahmed Sheik. What will it take for a Tory minister's head to roll? Scotland will do things differently on social security. Historic legislation to set up new system based on dignity, fairness and respect passes in Holyrood. By Gregor Jung. Energy firms' profits rise after cold snap. Scottish power given boost by Beast from the East. By Kirstine Patterson. SNP MPs question targeted posts. By Gregor Jung. We Ginger Doug. Royal Baby, let's focus on the real news, please. The National, on Saturday, April 28th, 2018. Reading an article from Friday, April 27th, 2018. Call for rebate over price control profits. Article by James Hamilton. Households are overpaying for their electricity following off-gem set price controls that have resulted in excess profits for distribution companies, a charity has warned. Citizens Advice said UK households are footing the bill for billions of pounds in excess profits made by electricity distribution companies, the firms that own and operate the system of cables and towers that bring electricity from the National Transmission Network into homes. Last year, the charity said that decisions by the regulator in the way it calculated price controls across the gas and electricity networks had cost consumers a total of £7.5 billion, 
or an average of £285 per household over the eight-year price control. According to Citizens Advice, electricity networks alone are set to make excess profits averaging £75 per household across eight years in even the least affected regions. It is calculated that households in northern Scotland should be given £110 back. It is calling on networks to return the money to their customers. The charity is also calling on Ofgem to ensure that its next set of price controls deliver a better deal for consumers. Citizens Advice Chief Executive Gillian Guy said, People across the country are overpaying on their energy bills because some network companies are making unjustified profits. Ofgem has signalled its intention to deliver a tougher settlement on the network companies and a better deal for consumers. The regulator will undoubtedly face strong and sustained opposition as the networks try to protect the status quo. Ofgem must hold its nerve and make sure that the next price control delivers much better value for consumers. But rather than wait for the next price control to be in place, firms which haven't already should return these unjustified profits to consumers as a matter of priority. An Energy Networks Association spokesman said, The calculations underpinning this analysis are plucked out of thin air and run directly counter to the conclusions of the independent regulator and the Competition and Markets Authority. Network costs are down 17% under the current ownership model, delivering £9 billion of savings for consumers by running a world-class system of energy networks more efficiently. An Ofgem spokesman said, We have already set out proposals to address the issues citizens' advice raise by setting tougher price controls for networks from 2021, with lower expected returns for the companies. Our proposals could save consumers more than £5 billion. We want to work with Citizens Advice and other key stakeholders to deliver the next price control. We are closely monitoring the the performance of all network companies and we will keep up the pressure on them to get the best possible deal for consumers in the current price control. Our regulations and voluntary contributions by gas distribution and energy transmission companies has already secured around £5 billion in savings for consumers since the current price controls began in 2013. And that was an article by James Hamilton, The National, on Saturday, April 28th, 2018. Reading an article from today. Scotland needs its own law to protect puppies. By the wee ginger duck. Dogs, as we all know, are our best friends. Ginger, the actual wee ginger duck, is the independence movement's best friend. It sure as hell isn't the BBC. We invite dogs into our lives and our families, and they repay us thousands of times over with their love, devotion and joy for life. They help us in ways that dogs themselves can't even begin to comprehend, as they stare into our souls with their deep brown eyes. Ginger certainly helped to keep me sane and ensured I didn't withdraw into myself when I was dealing with the grief and loss that came with the illness and death of my late partner Andy. We owe them. Sadly, all too often we don't treat dogs with the same love and care that dogs give us. Ginger is an example of that. He's a rescued dog, found abandoned by an irrigation canal near Elche in southern Spain. He had obviously been neglected and abused for a long time, as he was nothing but skin and bone. His ribs and spine were sticking out, he had a terrible infestation of fleas and ticks. He was missing some of his front teeth, suggesting that he'd been subjected to violence. 
Some of his other issues only became clear afterwards. Ginger was a young adult dog when he was rescued, but he had clearly been taken from his mother far too young. He was never socialised properly with other dogs, and that has left him with lasting psychological issues that can't be undone. Well, he's now well-fed and confident, happy with his life and his human daddy and exceptionally sociable with people. Ginger doesn't understand doggy body language and probably doesn't realise that he's a dog. That means he can't be allowed to run free in a dog park and his life is restricted in important ways because the priority is to keep him safe and to keep other dogs safe from him. He doesn't understand other dogs, so he's nervous and aggressive around him. The physical damage that was done to him in his early months and years has been cured, although he's always going to be missing those teeth. The psychological damage will remain with him for life. Ginger is an example of why it's vitally important that we care for dogs properly at all stages in their lives, from early puppyhood into adulthood, and particularly during that crucial transition from their doggy birth mother into their new human families. SNP MP Lisa Cameron is well aware of this, as she and other MPs support a petition to Westminster called Lucy's Law, which aims to outlaw third-party puppy sales. Lucy's Law is named for a King Charles Spaniel who was rescued from the puppy farm system. Lucy had been used as a breeding machine for years with no consideration of her health or welfare. She was rescued and adopted by barrister Lisa Garner in 2013 and is now a mascot for the anti-puppy farm campaign. Lucy's Law, if implemented, would outlaw the sale of puppies by pet shops and other third-party commercial dealers. It would not affect dog rescue charities. The law would ensure that when buying a dog, members of the public would be able to see the puppy with its mother, giving them reassurance that the puppy was being bred in acceptable conditions and both it, its mother and its litter mates were well cared for. The petition has now received over 120,000 signatures and enjoys the support of 92 MPs. East Kilbride MP Lisa Cameron is the primary sponsor of an early day motion in the Commons to debate Lucy's Law. Lisa says, Lucy's Law has overwhelming public support. It is vital we address the cruelty of third-party puppy sales and puppy farming. The UK and Scottish governments must close the loophole for puppy farming and importation to make sure that puppy welfare is at the heart of policy. Ginger the Dug and his human dad are both happy to lend our support to Lisa's campaign. Anything that prevents dogs suffering the kind of damage that Ginger suffered is a cause well worth supporting. However, even if adopted by the Commons, Lucy's law would only be effective in England and Wales. In Scotland, the Scottish Government supports an initiative from the Scottish SPCA, which seeks to regulate third-party commercial dog dealers but not to outlaw them entirely. Vet and animal welfare campaigner Mark Abraham, who has been one of the leaders of the campaign to ban third-party puppy sales, gives as one of his motivations the damage that puppies suffer by being removed from their mothers too young. Mark believes that simply ensuring that puppies are sold via recognised and licensed third-party dealers isn't enough to ensure their welfare, and that Scotland needs its own version of Lucy's law, its own wee ginger law. Mark, who as a vet has many years' experience in dog welfare, says, Prospective puppy buyers should always be able to view pups interacting with mum in the place they were born. Removing pups from their mums and transporting them to a different place for sale is a well-known to harm their welfare, often creating sick, traumatised and dysfunctional dogs. Selling puppies via commercial third-party dealers, e.g. pet shops, 
legally or illegally, will usually result in damage to both the pups and they're hidden from the public mums, as well as preventing any breeder accountability. So legitimising and regulating commercial third-party puppy dealers is ineffective to prevent this harm, as the pups are already damaged goods before reaching the seller, and legal, licensed third-party dealers also provide the all-important without-mum framework for any illegal activity, for example, imported pups from Irish puppy farms and sold in Scotland. So an outright ban, i.e. Lucy's Law, is therefore necessary as soon as possible. Let's not see Scotland fall behind England and Wales in our treatment of our canine friends. It's time Scotland followed suit and adopted its own version of Lucy's Law. That was an article by Neil Kavanagh, Wee Ginger Doug, The National, on Saturday, April 28th, 2018. Reading an article from Friday, April the 27th, 2018. We can't yet abolish the monarchy, but we can tackle poverty. By John Finney. My Green colleague Patrick Harvey got it spot on when he called out the excessive fawning over privilege by some politicians about the birth of William and Kate Windsor's third child. In case you missed it, Patrick's amendment to a Tory motion that was in awe of the royal couple and their new baby received quite a bit of media attention. In it, Patrick rightly congratulated the parents of the thousands of children born in the UK on the same day, while highlighting that 30% of the babies will be born into poverty. Don't get me wrong, all the best to them, but as a society we need to be focusing on what kind of future awaits all children in this country, and not just those deemed to have royal blood and who will face no monetary hardship in their lives. Behind all the flag-waving and newly printed tea towels lies a sobering statistic that one in four children in Scotland now lives in poverty. To think that four million children in the UK, that's more than the entire population of Wales, now lives in poverty shows that we have our priorities so unbelievably wrong. We know that such lavish attention for one privileged child is wrong because poverty overall in Scotland continues to rise, now sitting at 16%. It's no secret that I want Scotland to be independent, in part because we could decide for ourselves if spending money on trident nuclear weapons is more important than tackling child poverty. I also don't believe in standing still and waiting for Independence Day to take action, and I'm proud of what my Green colleagues and I are trying to achieve at Holyrood, albeit with the limited powers of a devolved Parliament. On Wednesday, the Scottish Parliament passed legislation that we can all be proud of with a Social Security Bill. Moreover, my Green colleague Alison Johnston had had an amendment to the bill passed that seeks to ban assessments from being undertaken, unless the Scottish Government can demonstrate that already existing evidence from GPs, social workers and other professionals is not sufficient to corroborate a claim. This will have the effect of significantly reducing the much-hated assessments, a move described by Citizens Advice Scotland as the highest priority for the Scottish social security system. Throughout the Social Security Bill and Child Poverty Act, the Scottish Greens have pushed for measures that will make a real difference to people's pockets. Topping up child benefit by £5 a week would lift 30,000 children out of poverty, and our amendments to the Child Poverty Act made sure the government has to consider this in every child poverty delivery plan. The Poverty and Inequality Commission agrees that the delivery plan should be clear about how the government plans to use powers to top up and create benefits to meet child poverty targets. 
We've also pushed for a national rollout of the Healthier Welfare Children programme, which makes sure pregnant women and families with young children get the financial help they need. By making sure midwives and health visitors can refer parents directly to trusted money and welfare rights advice, this approach has helped families across Greater Glasgow and Clyde gain almost £16 million since 2010. We are determined to see families right across Scotland benefit from these measures and after pressing the Public Health Minister on the progress of the rollout, she confirmed that the Child Poverty Delivery Plan will provide resources to progress this programme. It's crucial that everyone can access the benefits they're entitled to quickly and easily. That's why Greens secured an end to unnecessary face-to-face assessments when people are applying for disability benefits. The Social Security Experience Panels agree that these onerous assessments must stop. Most of us are aware of the stress that can come from financial insecurity, and I can't think of many stronger messages that Scotland could send the world about its intent to tackle poverty than to implement a citizen's income. A universal basic income would provide stability to parents who work part-time, who might feel required to take some breaks from employment to fulfil caring responsibilities, and who wish to study or retrain to improve their circumstances. The Scottish Government should follow pilot projects in Glasgow and Fife closely and continue to lead research and modelling in the impact of a basic income. Some on the right might be incensed that Patrick Harvey had the audacity to speak the truth and say that the scandalous level of poverty and inequality in society is unlikely to be corrected until politicians and media outlets stop fetishising privilege and fawning over those who enjoy it. While eradicating poverty and abolishing the monarchy are unlikely to happen before independence, Until then, it should never stop us from doing everything we can to make Scotland fairer. And that was an article by John Finney. Here at QN Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. The National On Saturday, April 28th, 2018 Reading an article from today Photographer has prize stripped over faked anteater photo An article by Bridget Morris An award-winning image of an anteater moving towards a termite mound at night has been disqualified from the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. The photograph, taken in Brazil's Imas National Park, won the Animals in Their Environment category in 2017, but has been stripped of the award. The National History Museum, which runs the international competition, said it had been tipped off by anonymous sources. An investigation examined images of a taxidermy anteater kept on display at a visitor centre at the Porto do Bandeira Gate. Five mammal and taxidermy experts all concluded there are elements of the animal's posture and features that are too similar for the images to show two different animals. The museum ruled the image breaks the rules of the competition, which requires entrants not to deceive the viewer or attempts to disguise and or misrepresent the reality of nature. Photographer Marcio Cabral cooperated fully and denies the shot shows a taxidermy specimen. And that was an article by Bridget Morris. The National. On Saturday, April 28th, 2018.
an article from Friday, April 27th, 2018. Rudd must go. Call to quit after review of deportation targets by Kirstine Patterson. Amber Rudd is committed to making sure I go on, but calls for her resignation intensified yesterday after immigration removal targets were confirmed. On Wednesday, Rudd said targets for removal of illegal immigrants did not exist, but she was forced to admit that they did yesterday in light of new evidence to the contrary. During questioning prompted by the Windrush scandal, Rudd told MPs that local removal goals had been set for internal performance management. Insisting that she would put she would never support a policy that puts targets ahead of people, Rudd, who succeeded Theresa May as Home Secretary, said the immigration arm of the Home Office has been using local targets for internal performance management. These were not published targets against which performance was assessed, but if they were used inappropriately, then I am clear that this will have to change. I have asked officials to provide me with a full picture of performance measurement tools which are used at all levels, and will update the House and the Home Affairs Select Committee as soon as possible. Yesterday, the BBC, which uncovered evidence of targets in a 2015 inspection report, suggested they will be scrapped within days. The annual target for voluntary removals, those where individuals notify the Home Office of their intention to leave, not state-ordered deportations, was 12,000 in 2015-16. Leading fresh immigration calls, Labour's Diane Abbott told the Commons, when Lord Carrington resigned over the Falklands, he said it was a matter of honour. Isn't it time that the Home Secretary considered her honour and resigned? The SNP's Alison Foulis also repeated her quick call to Rudd, citing the litany of callous incompetence in her department and accusing the Tory minister of presiding over a department out of control, marked by cruelty and chaos. However, Tory Sir Nicholas Soames said Rudd has the total support of her party in trying to resolve a very difficult legacy issue, and backbench colleague Philip Davis claimed opposition parties are out of touch with working-class communities on immigration. Addressing the resignation question directly, Rudd responded, I do take seriously my responsibility, but I do think I am the person who can put it right. The morning row was followed by an afternoon bungle when Rudd suggested that the Cabinet had not finalised its position on post-Brexit customs union membership. When, When asked about her views on the subject at an event for parliamentary journalists, she said, I'm not going to be drawn on that. We still have a few discussions to be had in a really positive, consensual and easy way among some of my Cabinet colleagues in order to arrive at a final position. The comment prompted a flurry of responses from political rivals and a prompt Twitter clarification from Rudd, who posted, I should have been clearer. Of course, when we leave the EU, we will be leaving the customs union. I wasn't going to get into ongoing Cabinet discussions about our future trading relationship. On the Windrush row, which has seen people from other Commonwealth countries threatened with deportation and post-war landing cards destroyed, she said it had been a difficult few weeks. Rudd continued, I feel very seriously responsible and involved in what we are going to do about addressing the Windrush crisis or fiasco, whatever people care to call it. That was an article by Kirstine Patterson. The National On Saturday, April 28th, 2018. Reading an article from Friday, April 27th, 2018. First Minister, 
I Won't Sign Up to UK's Dodgy Powers Deal by Gregor Young Nicola Sturgeon has made clear she will not do a deal to support key Brexit legislation unless further changes are made by the UK government. Scotland's First Minister insisted that, as it stands, it would not be in Scotland's national interest for Holyrood to give its consent to the EU withdrawal bill. Changes made by Westminster, including the introduction of a sunset clause limiting how long Westminster could hold on to powers returning from Brussels, have secured the agreement of the Welsh to the bill. Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson called on the SNP leader to follow suit, saying while all parties in Holyrood had originally expressed concerns about the impact the legislation would have on devolution, changes were being made. There is a deal to be done here. The Welsh back it, other parties in the chamber back it, Davidson said. I say to her, for once will you do a deal in the national interest and not your nationalist interest? Sturgeon insisted. This deal is not in the national interest, that is why I won't sign up to it. She added, I don't agree with the decision Wales has arrived at, but I respect their right to take it. That is the nature of devolution. The sunset clause now included in the bill would still allow the UK government to restrict Holyrood's powers for up to seven years, the SNP leader told MSPs. Speaking at First Minister's questions, she said, if the Scottish government were to give it the go-ahead, this could potentially allow the UK government to force us, perhaps, to lift our ban on GM crops and could also force us to relax food standards regulations and perhaps open a door to US chlorinated chicken. The SNP leader claimed it could even restrict the Scottish government's ability to tackle health problems such as obesity and alcohol abuse. Davidson said, Isn't it the case that it doesn't suit the First Minister's political purposes to make a deal? so she is dancing on the head of a pin in order to find reasons not to. Westminster does not need the consent of the Scottish Parliament to introduce the withdrawal bill, but it could mark the first time the UK has pushed through legislation without the express consent of Holyrood. As it stands, Sir Sturgeon said the bill resulted in a heads-they-win, tails-we-lose situation with the UK government. I don't think any self-respecting member of this Parliament should give those proposals the time of day, and this government will not do that, she added. If that means we are the only party prepared to stand up for the rights and powers of this Scottish Parliament, then so be it. The dispute centres over whether powers returning from Brussels after Brexit should first go to London to allow UK-wide frameworks to be established in areas such as farming and environmental regulations. The First Minister said, We are being asked to sign up to an agreement that would allow the powers of this Parliament in areas that really matter, like agriculture, fishing, the environment state aid, public procurement. We are being asked to allow these powers to be removed for a period of up to seven years without the consent of this Parliament. She suggested two solutions to resolve the long-running dispute, saying Westminster must either drop Clause 11 from the bill or amend it to give Holyrood the proper right to consent. If the UK government does either of these things, then we have a deal, she said. And that was an article by Gregor Young. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, 
and in receipt of a means-tested benefit or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Cue and Review. Now, back to the main programme. The National, Wednesday 25th of April. News. This article written by columnist Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. What will it take for a Tory minister's head to roll? I'm wondering what it takes to get a Tory minister sacked or even resigned in 2018. Since the call before Christmas, when Damien Green left with his tail between his legs after dodgy downloads on his computer, preceded by a red-faced Michael Fallon, and then Pirti Patel's holiday misdemeanours, the UK government has been hanging on to several ministers by the skin of their teeth, not to mention the precarious position that PM finds herself in on a day-to-day basis. At the time of writing this column, it looks like no heads will roll over the unacceptable and heartbreaking Windrush scandal. We are here in the bizarre situation where Home Secretary Amber Rudd and her predecessor Theresa May have been offering their sincerest apologies for their own callous policy making. They've had plenty of time to right the wrongs of an inherently racist immigration system and yet it takes reports in the media to force their hand. In days gone by, I'm sure someone at the heart of the decision making would have done the right thing and taken a hit for what has got to be one of the cruelest Tory policies ever created. And I'm saying that, within the context of a crowded field of cruelty, such as the rape clause, cold and calculated austerity measures, soaring food bank usage, the tax credit fiasco, PIP disability assessments, universal credit, pension inequality, and the waspy woman. This is a long litany of inhumanity. Yet no one seems to be prepared to take ownership, behave honourably and resign. Meanwhile, the rest of the cabinet isn't exactly covering themselves in glory in their respective departments. Boris Johnson, with his foot permanently in his mouth, has managed to offend just about everybody who is anybody in the international arena. Liam Fox fluffed his own belief by failing to come up with any significant trade deals post-Brexit. And even David Davis managed to bungle this week by not informing constituency MPs in Northern Ireland when he finally deigned to visit the Irish border, almost incognito, with no news reporters there to document the event. As for Esther McVeigh, words fail me on her lack of human understanding over the insensitivity of her remarks on the benefits for rape victims when discussing the origins of the birth of their third child at an assessment meeting. For all the nostalgia of the Brexiteers who call the shots in the Cabinet, Claims of a return to traditional British values look wide of the mark. There's no decency or tolerance about Windrush. There's no fair play or good sportsmanship about jeopardising people in Ireland and there's certainly no respect for democracy when the government at Westminster is willing to take the Scottish and Welsh developed parliaments to the Supreme Court in order to pursue their own aims. The UK looks like a pastiche of an Enid Blayton book all home-cured righteousness on the outside with lashings of prejudice and racism on the inside. It's not much better at Conservative HQ in Scotland, where the rather unpopular Ross Thompson MP nearly caused an international incident with his disrespectful antics on a recent trip to Iraq, pictured grinning on Saddam Hussein's throne and messing about at the Victory Arch. The Tory MP for Aberdeen South boasted of finding his inner dictator 
It was all too much for the Aberdonian mother of a soldier killed in the Iraqi conflict who called for his resignation over his disgusting behaviour, and rightly so. Why is Ruth Davidson staying so quiet on this squalid affair? It must be hard for her to watch one of her least loyal MPs trivialise and belittle the forces, a cause to which she is so personally attached. Those tank photo ops in army fatigues will seem very out of place when a member of your own party fails to respect the sacrifices made by men and women far younger and with much more to lose than he does. But then, the Scottish Tory leader's squad haven't exactly courted respect since they appeared on the scene almost a year ago. Missing the deadline to make amendments in the EU withdrawal bill and jeopardising devolution, rebellion against their Scottish leader on a hard Brexit, disappearing to referee football matches instead of representing constituents in Parliament, not to mention unsavoury racist bigotry further down the elected food chain. Ruth Davidson can't stay holed up at party headquarters forever, failing to take control over these less than savoury characters. At some point, she's going to have to face the music and explain why, no matter how much she's tried to rebrand her party as nice or pretend they have nothing to do with their colleagues down south, they always return to the dark side. Still, we're only four months into 2018 and there's a lot left to play for. The House of Lords has started to savage the EU withdrawal bill and rumours are circulating that Theresa May is about to do a U-turn on staying in the customs union. Get set for a raft of resignations, should this be so. The Brexiteers will want the PM's head on a platter if this is the case. But it might be her that gets the last laugh if Fox or Johnson make their resignation move first. Get ready to watch May's house of cars come tumbling down. This article was written by Tasmina Ahmed Sheik. Today's April the 28th, 2018, and this is from The National. Thursday, April the 26th, 2018. Scotland will do things differently on social security. Historic legislation to set up new system based on dignity, fairness and respect passes in Holyrood by Gregor Young. Scotland's Social Security Minister has pledged to do things differently as Holyrood approved legislation that will see the introduction of a new benefits system north of the border. Jean Freeman hailed the unanimous passing of the Social Security Scotland Bill as a new chapter in the history of devolution. Responsibility for 11 welfare benefits, worth about £3 billion a year, is being transferred to Scotland in the single biggest transfer of power since devolution began, she said. The minister added, This bill has been an opportunity to set up a new service and to do things differently, to make the system in a way that better fits with the ambition we have for ourselves as a parliament and for our country, our shared ambition to live with dignity, fairness and respect. Labour MSPs attempted to hijack the bill with a bid to increase child benefit payments by £5 across the board, but it was voted down by the SNP, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. MSPs, however, unanimously, unanimously agreed a Green Amendment to the legislation which will ban unnecessary medical assessments for disability benefits with applicants instead able to use existing medical reports to support a claim. 
during the debate, Freeman et al. the failed assessment regime put in place by the, by the Department for Work and Pensions, claiming the requirement for medical tests would heap stress onto, onto claimants and exasperate illnesses. Where assessments are required, the Scottish Government has ruled out private companies carrying out the tests. Another change will see payments of the universal credit benefit split between couples so that money goes to both parties instead of just one, usually the man. After securing government backing for the change, Griffin said, Labour has long pressured for this simple practical step to help vulnerable women and it is welcome. It is welcome it is now enshrined in law. MSPs also unanimously back changes to the bill and will ensure clinical judgment rather than the time limit is used when defining a terminal illness. Overall, Freeman stressed the new benefit system would be rights-based, recognising that Social Security itself is a human right and would have a central requirement that the system should treat everyone with the dignity and the respect they deserve. She told MSPs at Holyrood, Today we write a new chapter in our history. A system built for the people of Scotland, designed in partnership with the people of Scotland. A system with dignity, fairness and respect at its heart. A system quite unlike any other that has gone before. Scottish Conservative MSP Adam Tompkins said the Parliament had worked to significantly improve the bill. However, he said there remained an awful lot of work to do before the Scottish Social Security system becomes operational. The critical questions in Social Security are who is entitled to what, and this bill answers neither of those questions, he said. All the rules about eligibility criteria and about fixing the amounts of benefits to be paid will be provided for in regulations to be made by ministers. But Green MSP Alison Johnson argued that dignity and respect are absolute at the heart of the bill. She said the problem with the current system isn't just that support has been cut, although that is bad enough. The culture around the current system is usually problematic, a culture of suspicion of people who ask for help from the benefit system. Liberal Democrat Alex Cold Hamilton also argued the legislation restored some of the humanity that has been disrupted in the UK social security system. I think it is a really important day for our history as a country and as a devolved nation, he said. End of item. Today is the 28th of April 2018 and this is from the National Thursday, April the 26th, 2018. Energy firms' profits rise after cold snap. Scottish power given boost by Beast from the East by Kirstine Patterson. Scottish power won big from the latest big freeze as the beast from the east sent customer demand soaring. The Glasgow-based giant has revealed a near 250% earning rebound in its retail supply arm. First quarter underlying earnings in, the, in its generation and supply arm rose to £131.7 million as freezing conditions forced consumers to keep heating high in late February and early March. 
Heavy snow blanketed the country, keeping workers and families at home, as offices and schools kept their doors shut. As much as 44 centimetres fell in Bishopton, Renfrewshire, where the highest accumulation was recorded. The numbers were warmly welcomed by the company after mild con- conditions a year earlier caused earnings in the division to crash. Keith Anderson, chief executive of the Big Six supplier, said the improvement in generation and supply follows a very difficult 2017, which delivered one of the weakest performances for the business in the last decade. The first three months of the year had seen the business recover to a level just below the first quarter in 2016. With the price cap pending this year, we still expect a challenging environment for the retail business in 2018. The news comes less than a week after the firm announced a price increase for about 950,000 households. Standard variable gas and electricity prices will go up for around a third of customers from June the 1st, with households affected facing an average increase of 5.5%. Scottish Power, owned by Spanish firm Iberdrola, this is due to an increase in wholesale energy costs, as well as costs associated with upgrading meters and delivering electricity from low-carbon sources. Around 100,000 customers left the company in the first quarter, taking total accounts to 5 million. This follows the loss of about 200,000 accounts last year. Meanwhile, the wider Iberdrola group reported an underlying earnings boost of almost 25%. Figures hit £2 billion in the first three months of 2018, fuelled in part by the improved UK performance. Net profits also rose by 1.2% to £733 million. The parent firm said the success was despite the negative impact of the exchange rate and reported an increase of 14% in capita expenditure in March of more than £1 billion. Three quarters of that spending was funnelled into networks and the renewable energy business, including operations in Germany. In the UK, Scottish Power Renewables generated almost 1,700 gigawatt hours of electricity, up nearly 23% on the same period last year. Most of this generation, 32%, came from offshore facilities and the favourable wind conditions blew the gross operating profit up by one-third, or almost £29 million. Reaffirming its forecasts for the year, Iberdrola said new new tariff frameworks in America and Brazil will boost the network's business, while higher output and an increase in both hydroelectric reserves and wind conditions will improve the performance of the renewables area. It expects the pre-tax take to hit more than uh, £10 billion and achieving a net profit of, of close to £3 billion for the full year. The group said generation and retail activities will benefit from the positive effects of the increased demand, the new capacity and higher output. End of item. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. 
You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. Today is the 28th of April 2018 and this is from the National Thursday, April 26th, 2018. SNP MPs question targeted posts by Gregor Young. SNP MPs have raised questions in the Commons after claiming the Scotland office undertook a very targeted social media campaign in the Scottish Secretary's own constituency. Scottish Secretary David Mundell said there were very clear rules about which the government operated, arguing that the Scottish government targets specific audiences. Speaking during Scotland, Scotland Questions, Alan Brown, MP for Kilmarnock and Loudoun, asked it must be more than a coincidence that the Scotland office did a very targeted Facebook campaign in his own constituency. SNP colleague Brendan O'Hara, MP for Argyle and Butte, added, We've been told that the Scotland Office published numerous Facebook posts to coincide with government visits, but it appears the posts only relating to his constituency received a financial boost. If this is the case, and the Scotland Office is seen to be micro-targeting tailored Facebook adverts only to voters in the constituency, does he consider that a misuse of taxpayers' money and an abuse of power? Mundell replied, If he has specific questions that are very clear rules under which the government operates have been breached, then I would like to hear hear them. But it's very clear, for example, that the Scottish government target specific audiences. And if he is saying that they do not, I would be very surprised to hear that. Conservative Douglas Ross said, Cambridge Analytica claimed yesterday that the SNP's involvement with them was far more than Nicola Sturgeon had previously claimed. Does he agree that the SNP should be far more open and honest about their involvement with CA, particularly with their own MPs? Tory Kevin Foster added, would he agree that it's important that separatists are equally open about how they've used these consultancies? Mundell replied, the SNP have a very great many questions to answer about their involvement with CA. Labour Shadow Scotland Minister Paul Sweeney said he was rather rather ironic SNP MPs had raised the issue on social media cons- consultancies given their subs- subsequent unwillingness to offer basic transparency. End of item. The National, Wednesday 25th, Opinions. Article written by columnist Wee Ginger Doug. Royal Baby, let's focus on the real news please. Earlier this week, a poll was published which showed that a significant majority of Scots would prefer to remain a part of the EU. The story was published on Monday, when there was no other news to note, because some royal women had just had a wane. The royal women having a wane was a cue for all sorts of people draped in Union flags to parade on the telly and gush about how excited they were and how this was the best thing to happen since the last time the same royal woman had a wane. This, of course, an example of how British nationalism is so much better than other nationalisms, because it's not nationalist at all. 
Displays of British nationalism are an unsettling combination of weirdly comic and deeply sinister, like a villain from a Batman movie, but without the special effect budget. The Tories have spent the last few years destroying hospitals, so they've got quite a lot in common with Heath Ledger's Joker. British nationalism wants us to believe that Prince Charles is deserving of his internship as leader of the Commonwealth, the first time in 70 years that the self-pitying privileged posho has got a job. And then, only because his ma had a wee word with the selection committee. There was real potential for a news story about who would expire first from paroxysms of royalist hysteria, the reporting teams from Sky News, or the ones from the BBC, although personally my money was on Murdo Fraser. But sadly, we were spared that, and instead were treated to assorted reporters standing outside a hospital, desperately filling in time because nothing was actually happening. I was only watching in the vain hope that one, just one reporter, would point a microphone at one of the Union flag-bedecked people who'd been camping outside the hospital for the past fortnight and ask, what in God's name is wrong with you? There was some real news happening elsewhere, but that didn't count because some royal woman had just had a wane, and we've not even had that bloody wedding yet. Just kill me now. But back to some of that real news... The EU poll in question was an online poll of readers of various publications across the whole of the UK. It showed that Scotland is, by a decent margin, the most pro-European part of the UK. The poll was an online poll, and although it wasn't statistically balanced in order to ensure that those answering the question were properly representative of the population as a whole, the results are probably rather more representative of Scottish opinion than anything that comes out of the mouths of Scottish Conservative politicians. Although, to be fair, that wouldn't be hard, as most people in Scotland instinctively know that pretending to be Saddam Hussein for a joke isn't a good look for an MP, nor do they have to go on special diversity training to know that sectarianism is a bad thing. Even though the poll wasn't statistically balanced, we can still learn from it, which again is rather more than you can say for a Scottish Conservative politician. Mind you, I did once learn something from Jackson Carlaw. I learned that Scottish Tories think that Gaelic road signs are marginal incantations to get people to vote for independence. I also learned that Scottish Tories aren't the brightest bunch on the planet. But we all knew that already. But back to the poll. It's confirmation that Scotland remains strongly pro-European and that public dissatisfaction with the British government's handling of the Brexit process is widespread in Scotland. Dissatisfaction with the amount of time that the media devotes to the royals having wanes is also widespread. It would be nice to have a poll to confirm that too. The poll confirms that Scotland's relationship with Europe is going to be key in the next Scottish independence referendum. Mind you, I strongly suspect that if an independent Scotland would give a cast-iron categorical guarantee that we'd never have to see Nicholas Witchell on the telly ever again, that yes vote in the next referendum would be a shoe-in. Despite the strongly pro-European sentiment in Scotland, it would be a mistake to fight the next independence referendum campaign on the basis of seeking independence in order that Scotland can still be a member of the EU. Research carried out by the pro-independence think tank Common Wheel has shown that there has been a significant churn in support for independence. The Brexit issue has caused many former no-voters to shift to supporting independence, But equally, there's been a dropping off in support for independence among some soft yeses. 
This is why there's been no real change in support for independence in the polls since 2014. What we need to focus on in the next independence referendum campaign is on the right of Scotland to decide its own relationship with the EU and the rest of the world, instead of being stuck with a Tory Brexit. What the churn in support for independence tells us is that the biggest task ahead of us isn't to convert no voters to yes, although it's certainly important that we continue to work on that. However, what's going to win us the next Scottish referendum will be getting those soft yeses who have drifted back to yes again. People we will be targeting are people who have already voted yes. They were already persuaded to vote for independence, and they can be persuaded to vote for independence again. That ought to be a much easier task than persuading someone who voted no last time to change their mind. If we combine together everyone who voted yes last time, plus those who have since come over to yes because of Brexit, there's already a majority for independence. That's why I am so confident that Scotland is going to vote for independence next time. Approximately 145 children are born in Scotland every day. If the independence movement can get back to those people who once supported independence, but have since drifted away, we can make sure that those babies will have a Scotland worth living in. An independent Scotland, where their votes will count for something when they're adults. And then, as well as deciding what sort of relationship that we want with Europe and the rest of the world, Scotland can also decide what sort of relationship it wants with the Windsors and the legions of gushing propagandists who fill our airwaves every time they reproduce or marry. This article was written by the Wee Ginger Dog. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The National. This weekly Talking Newspaper Digest was a Q&Review Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review, Review and the producers were Shusi and Pete Kennedy. Q&Review Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.